coming up on this episode. I mean, how do you empathize with a mass killer, right? But to continue to dismiss this person as a sicko also says, I'm no longer curious about why you did this, the events that led up to you doing this. I'm closing down all my curiosity. I'm going to label you as a villain, which you are, and a sicko. And I have no further you know, recon to do on this. And that's where I say, wait a second, that doesn't seem helpful. That seems like this thing is going to repeat itself till somebody says, wait, why are these people doing this all of a sudden? And why is it happening so often? And how can we prevent it as a culture? Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., we said last week that this week we were going to talk about workspace. We did. That is like how your workspace should be laid out and all that kind of stuff to create the best results. We're not going to talk about that. No, we're not. And the reason (laughs) is we brought in Dr. Lee Norton. Yeah. And Lee Norton is a, I think she's a clinical psychologist. I feel bad for not knowing that, but she does a lot in the court system. Mm -hmm. So she is the person who went in, for instance, in high-profile cases like one she actually did, Timothy McVeigh. So she spent six hours alone with Timothy McVeigh asking a bunch of questions and those kind of things, attempting to understand from, I believe, a defense perspective why he did what he did. But she can't talk about all the cases. But she is really knowledgeable about psychopaths. Yeah. And... Not very long ago, there was an article that came out, and I read from it during our interview, during our conversation in Business Insider, it talks about how a lot of CEOs are psychopathic. Really? Yes. They lack uh, empathy. Uh-huh. They're, of course, very driven. They have a lot of charisma, those kinds of things that actually, in some ways, benefit them. Yeah. But do a lot of damage. Yeah. And so we wanted to talk to Lee about... Not just how to deal with a psychopath boss. I would say that's 25% of what we ended up talking about. Yeah. But how do we as non-psychopaths, please, please let me be not a psychopath. <laughs> I'm putting let's myself include, in the non-psychopathic category. Let's draw a big category. circle here. An us non-psychopaths, <laughs> yeah. Psychopath. Are all of our listeners who we're going to assume are non-psychopaths. Well, apparently it's a yeah. very small percentage yeah, who are actually yeah. psychopaths. So I'm, uh, statistically, I don't have, I, you know, I think yeah. maybe I'm not. Anyway, how do we create places to work that promote mental health? Yeah. And this past two weeks... Kate Spade committed suicide yeah. in New York City. Anthony Bourdain in Paris. Yeah. Boy, what a tragic loss that was. Seriously. Well, and, any life, any life that gets taken early is tragedy. Yeah. But then especially now, we seem to have this at least conversation that's bubbling up around mental health in the public. And there's been, I think, a long time, a stigma around talking about mental health. And so we haven't created a safe place to talk about mental health mm-hmm. because mental health itself has such a stigma. We just yeah, assume yeah. everybody's doing okay. We assume everybody's able to address it on or their own. Or if they're own. not, what does that have to do with yeah. you know, the objectives here? Yeah. And yet it's something that is rising up a conversation around the country. And it's something that if we are creating a safe workspace and we want to grow our business, and we want to empower the people who work for us and with us, this is something we need to address in creating a space that is safe for people to talk about mental health issues, but also address them and move forward to become healthy. We don't even have to word it as mental health issues, yeah, right? Yeah, it's issues even itself. Yeah. yeah, it's just basically saying, is your work environment a place where people feel safe, you know, to a degree, Yeah. saying, I didn't have a great weekend? Yeah. And it was really painful. And, you know, I feel really alone in this. And is it okay to stop 
for 15 minutes and have that conversation. And as leaders, as bosses, yeah. have we modeled that? Yeah. And there are just some small ways to do it. You know, checking back in when you hear somebody has been hurting or sitting yeah. down and those kinds of things. We do a couple things in our office, as you know, JJ. Anybody who wants to go to on-site workshops can go for free. Yeah. So on-site workshops is a place here in Tennessee. Most people come from out of state to go there or even fly over from Europe. But it's a one-week program where about 60 people go through basically nine months of therapy in one week. Incredibly efficient, but it's not designed to be efficient. That's just the way the program is. I've done it. My wife has done it. And I think our third employee, third or fourth employee is about to do it. And it's not cheap. And we pay the full price for it. And they take a week off. And they get paid for the week off. It doesn't count against their vacation. And what we found is not only does that help them, and on-site workshops isn't like if your life is completely falling apart. It's called a living-centered program. Honestly, I think getting away for a week and turning off your cell phone and eating (laughs) well is part of the the whole deal. Yeah, you don't even get that on vacation. Yeah. That's been great for a couple of reasons. One, it's a nice thing to do, and people come back feeling more centered and understanding why they've been frustrated about something. But it also, it creates an environment where we talk about things. Yeah. Because the company literally sent you somewhere to learn to express what's going on inside of you. Yeah. And, you know, little things like that, that's not a little thing, that's a big thing. You can't measure the return on that, but I just know it's huge. Yeah. And then... Next Wednesday, is that right? We're going to see uh, (laughs) Won't You Be My Neighbor. So the whole staff, during work hours, we're going to turn off the phones. If you call us next Wednesday, like around 2 o'clock, you might not get an answer. (laughs) Because the entire team is going to see the new documentary about Fred Rogers. And the one reason I wanted to do this was because just watching the couple documentaries that I've seen about him already, and I haven't seen this one, I can't wait, is life-changing. Yeah. Because he had this steely conviction that people mattered, that they were important, that you couldn't dismiss them, and that in the end, loving people was one of the most important things that you could do. And he, you know, testified as much in front of Congress, right? Trying to save public television and just had them eating at the palm of his hand. And I think there's just small things that you can do that are really important. And none of us are going to nail this. At the end of the day, it's a workplace. Yeah. We have to accomplish our objectives. But at the end of the day, I think the quicker a leader realizes your workplace is filled with human beings, not computers, human beings who interact with each other, who have tough days, who feel rejected, who misunderstand, yeah. you know, somebody's yep. comment and are hurt by that. And, you know, we have a bunch of, I think, emotionally very healthy people on staff. There's no drama on our staff, those kinds of things. The reason I like this interview and this whole topic so much is because the reality is People spend eight hours a day. They're trusting eight hours a day, five days a week to you, their boss. Yeah. And that is a bigger responsibility than I think anything else we're doing. Because we get to influence whether or not that person comes home feeling like they've done something meaningful that day, Mm -hmm. feeling like they've been challenged, feeling like their skills have... They have purpose. All that's connected to mental health. Yeah. And we get into it in this interview. I was just having dinner with a friend, and the friend told me about Lee Norton. And, I mean, just on the description, I said, yo, I've got to have her on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to have her. She is so just empathetic and kind, and she's really a wonderful person. So I'm glad to introduce her to our listeners. But, you know, but the key to this thing is, you know, first diagnose whether or not you're a psychopath. <laughs> and then, what can you do? I don't know about that self-diagnosis. Self-diagnosis of, of psychopathy yeah. probably doesn't work. But the, the, you know, the real question is, what small things can you do to make your environment more friendly for people to be healthy? Anyway, I'm grateful to introduce her to everybody. You're going to love her. Her name is Dr. Lee Norton. Here's my conversation. Thank you.
Dr. Norton, will you tell us what you do and what you specialize in and how you're in and out of the court system and all that kind of stuff? Well, I do a couple of different things. In the clinical domain, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I am a fellow with the American Academy of Experts Mm -hmm. in Traumatic Stress, working with a long spectrum from developmental trauma to what we call type 1 trauma, which is a one-time incident, all the way up to mass casualty. So that's yeah. the clinical domain. And then I got into the clinical domain because I was working in the court system in Florida mm. back in the early 80s. And I was pursuing some graduate work and was asked to do some research on a death penalty case, which mm. was required for the court. And so i did a lot of that and have done a lot of it over the years, since about 1982. You've talked about how trauma is showing up in all sorts of places, and we don't recognize it as trauma. I want to do this interview from a few angles. One is, later, I want to talk about CEOs being psychopaths (laughs) and how that is sometimes... You say psychopaths get a bad rap. I want to talk about mental health and the places that we work and how to recognize something's not right here, maybe with an employee and how we can get them help. And I also want to talk about trauma because... I have enough friends who, you know, Miles Adcox over at Onsite Workshops, and they do so much trauma work that it's very misunderstood. And yet, somebody who hasn't had any kind of really horrific experience in life can have trauma. There can be trauma in their brains, and it can be showing up in in weird places. Let's start with trauma, and then let's move to the workplace, and then let's talk about our crazy CEOs. Okay. <laughs> Does that sound like a good path? You sound like you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay. Well, what is trauma, and how is it showing up in our lives? Well, I think that today the way that we think about trauma is a bit different than we did in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Our more recent understanding of trauma probably evolved as much from the Vietnam War as any other place. That's when we had the first diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in 1980 of something called post-traumatic stress disorder. But as the research has gone on and as we as practitioners have interacted with people, what we came to understand was that there was trauma and there was trauma. There were different sorts or causes. Is it a spectrum? Yeah, I think that it is. We sometimes refer to it as type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is everything up until now has gone all right. There's really nothing remarkable, and then something horrific happens, a mass casualty, a terrible accident, a catastrophic loss of a primary relationship. Type 2 trauma loosely is what I refer to as wear and tear. It's usually developmental, where the brain has not developed, where we don't have much language, we don't have a lot of resources, and the child is not getting what they need, and even more important, perhaps, they're getting these toxic influences. Mm. That sets the template or starts to shape how we see, perceive the world. And typically, um, the outcome is that we don't see it as primarily a safe place. Mm. And we don't see our caretakers as people that are resources and on whom we can rely yeah. when our defenses fail. I remember a time just in my own life before I got married where this is a, such a mild example of what you're talking about, but I think people are going to identify it felt like there was a fight or flight instinct that was ramped up. And then over time, and I put it kind of with my marriage, over time, just living in a peaceful environment for a long period of time without, you know, there was a point where I lost all of my money, I lo- you know, in an investment. There were things that were just, I hate to compare that to some things that people actually deal with. But I noticed, you know, looking back over five years of marriage, I thought, I think my brain actually works differently now than it did. Then things that used to, 
kind of go, hey, what are you trying to take from me? Or that's just not there anymore. So my question is, can we experience trauma in a very mild form? And can it be repaired when a safe environment is reintroduced? Well, actually, what you're talking about with respect to losing finances or money is a pretty big deal. And mm. where we saw that was in the Depression of the 1930s. Mm. And if you recall from some of the history books, it was a period of time where people were literally sometimes jumping from windows. Yeah, I mean, but, that's a known, yeah. Right. But the reason thing. it can be so profoundly traumatic, which simply means that it's overwhelming our resources. The brain literally just gets stuck in fight or flight, has no idea where to go. Or it gets stuck in freeze. Gotcha. Okay. So we can actually collapse as a result of it. And we've seen that happen to people. And sometimes it's temporary and sometimes it's pretty protracted. Hmm. But the financial thing is part of identity. It may be something that we've worked for all our life. We perhaps are repairing damage because we grew up with nothing. And now finally we're safe. Yeah. And we're losing that. So it represented security, and then the security was taken away. It sure can. Yeah. And so it sounds like what happened to you is the word that we use sometimes is you became quite activated. You became a bit symptomatic. It sounds like you had what we call increased arousal symptoms or sort of a a nervousness or an edginess, a likelihood to react to things. And sometimes you'll see irritability with that agitation. And I would say I never knew it was there. Until years later when it slowly just, and I was like, boy, I used to be a little, I would say edgy is the word. I used to be more edgy. I used to be more That's right. defensive what, what, or something. What that yeah. suggests to me is that you had a baseline previously that you could return to. Right. And so the things that you were doing, the marriage probably provided support, other people in your life. And, you and rebuilding financially and rebuilding your skills, the security your, system and those kinds of things. Your skill set, correct. I like bringing that up because I think there's probably a lot of people listening who might self-diagnose and say, hey, I think something is going on here. I need to return to some sort of safety. It's a big deal in our culture at StoryBrand, in our workplace, that it's a safe place. It's, you know, one of our values is grace over guilt. So if you make a mistake, just let us know. We'll talk it through. There's going to be grace over guilt, those kinds of things. How important is the eight hours a day or more that our listeners' teams spend in their workplace? How important is it to pay attention to mental health? Well, we spend $42 billion a year on the Dealing with of the trauma. effects of mental health. Yeah. yeah, trauma, just trauma. That doesn't include other diagnoses uh, like bipolar and schizophrenia yeah. and other kinds of things. So it's huge. And we spend a third of our time typically in a workplace, whether we're working by ourselves or with a, usually a team of people. It's a so massive it's influence big. on our teams. The people who come to work where we work, it's a massive influence on their lives to pay attention and make a safe environment. It is, and I think that even attorneys are becoming wise to this. There is a now a subcommittee in the American Bar Association, and they're looking specifically at things that contribute to the compromise of mental health, like interpersonal violence. And those are the kinds of things that likely are perhaps being kept secret because the person is afraid what their boss or their coworkers might think. Mm. And now we've sort of added insult to injury. Right. And so teasing that apart and being able to get full visibility and then be proactive is essential. What do you see are the elements that bring a sense of safety and calm and even healing, I don't want to overuse the word, to a workplace? What is it that people can do? I think when the environment has a top-down philosophy of the grace over guilt, as Mm -hmm. you said, or some other terms that we could use. But what's happening is then the infrastructure of the organization is 
allowing the person to be regulated for the nervous system to literally calm down. With most mental illnesses, or lots of them, the problem is that we're not regulated. We're either hyper-aroused or we're sort of falling you know, into a state of inertia. What we're trying to do is have a place where we're optimally able to be active, to be creative, mm-hmm. to be connected, to be calm. We call those all the C words to right. come from our core. My experience in working a little bit with some CEOs is that when they make a commitment to have that a top-down inviolate yeah. value, that is communicated all the way down. Yeah. And as a result, people feel emotionally safe, they feel cognitively safe, they feel financially safe. There's lots of different aspects of safety. Yeah. And I would imagine that, you know, not to always tie it to the bottom line, because to do the right thing is the right thing, no matter what the bottom line is, but I would imagine it ties to the bottom line, that the ability to be productive and creative and safe actually serves our customers better if our teams can be oh, that way. Absolutely. That, as you well know, the money that we lose from people not being at work, mm-hmm. people being frightened or ashamed of coming into work, so they'd rather call off sick than explain something that happened, that's a loss of income. It's also a tremendous loss of creativity and generativity, which I think we're all hardwired to do. I want to read a little snippet of an article from Business Insider, and uh, I think it's a good kind of way to segue here. One of the problems, if you're talking about a top-down philosophy of empathy and caring and listening and being concerned, one of the problems is a lot of, and this was a very popular idea last year, we debated it a lot, a lot of our executives at the CEO level are on the psychopath spectrum, which means they don't have a lot of empathy. And you actually have a lot of sympathy for them. They get a lot done. But I want to read a little bit of this article and get your thoughts on it. Anyone who has worked with a CEO may not be surprised that many of them have common personality traits such as charisma, fearlessness, and a cool head under stress. However, while these sound like advantages, it has been suggested that CEOs are more likely to be psychopaths. According to Dr. Tara Stewart, neuroscientist, psychiatrist, and neuroscientist in residence in the Corinthia Hotel, psychopathy is a spectrum and we all fall on it somewhere. However, what separates us from the psychopaths is the ability to feel empathy. A psychopathic diagnosis requires a lot of boxes to be ticked, such as ruthlessness, narcissism, persuasiveness, the inability to feel guilt, or the inability to see things from another's perspective. They also have something called resilience to chaos. Psychopaths thrive on chaos and they know other people find it very stressful. Swartz said on Thursday at an event called The Dark Side of Leadership held at the Corinthia, they will purposefully create chaos in the environment because they find it easier to cope than other people. Psychopaths make up roughly 1% of the population. What's your view on CEOs, a lot of CEOs being in this 1% camp on the psychopathic spectrum, which I guess we all are on the psychopathic spectrum? Well, I've got a, a couple of thoughts on that. One is that while they're saying that psychopaths have low empathy, mm-hmm. the ability to feel what you're feeling or what I'm feeling, there are some other people who suggest that there are different types of empathy. Mm-hmm. So there's something called an emotional empathy and something called a cognitive empathy. People who have low emotional empathy tend not to be able to feel what the other person is feeling. But if I'm in a car wreck and I go to an emergency room, I want somebody with low emotional empathy. You want somebody who's not sitting there freaking out because they're identifying so much with your pain. Correct. I want them to be able to cognitively... So there's a place for this. That's right. So knowing when and where and how much, which comprises insight, I think is perhaps the next step of 
what the article is talking about. Cognitive empathy is where I can think about and imagine what you're feeling. Now, what I do with that is really the critical step. So that's different. The emotional empathy is you really feel what they're feeling. Cognitive says, I understand what they're feeling. I just don't necessarily feel it myself, but I get that this person's coming from another perspective. Exactly. So if you have a lot of emotional empathy, you're going to be, relatively, you're going to be at higher risk for burnout and for compassion fatigue. Hmm. Now, the other side of the coin, as the article suggested, you can have an extreme of psychopathy, and not only are you not able to feel not only do you not care what the other person is feeling, you are actually capitalizing on it. Hmm. Now, that is an even smaller percentage. There's than, not very many of those people. Those are the things that, you know, typically that movies are made of, that people right. are so devoid of human connection, you know, in a, a sense of right and wrong, having any kind of moral compass, that they're going to use what they have, this ability to imagine what the other person is feeling and then capitalize on it. And you see that sometimes in examples of, say, religious leaders who have really taken their flock to the cleaners and been, you know... Un- you think Jim Jones on the... Exactly. Whatever. Someone that they're devoid... So when you hear stories, and, you know, obviously stories are just stories, but we have reason to believe they're true, the way Saddam Hussein acted when you see Kim Jong-un, the way he treats his people, I mean, I would imagine you armchair diagnose some of this stuff. I don't know if you're allowed to admit that, (laughs) but I can't imagine that you don't. It's hard in today's world to not wonder, you know, what's going on. I think that the the notion I talked about before of Durkheim's prediction in the 50s that as the population goes Mm. up, we have something called a greater sense of anomie or estrangement from one another, and we lose our capacity to some extent to really connect. Is it just because we're overloaded with people? And especially in the digital age where we're following 300 people on Instagram, we're just overloaded with too many people to connect with so we don't create deep connections? It seems like that there's a correlation. I think that the research is still being generated, but there seems to be a correlation between the density of population and the intensity of the stimulus Hmm. that takes us offline. It takes us to different places. And you can see this with the cyber bullying, for example. We are dehumanizing people. We're objectifying them. And we're going way down, so we don't have much emotional empathy at all. More important, we probably don't even have much cognitive empathy because we're not even imagining how this person might feel. And instead, we seem to be acting more impulsively. Hmm. And we're acting on you know, impulses that previously we would have paused, we would have thought it through, we would have not acted upon it. So there's some research going on right now. I think history is going to have the answer, the last word on that. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Dr. Lee Norton in just a moment. Some of us are so close to what we're doing. We've been running this business for a long time, just trying to make ends meet. We haven't been able to step away and really look at what we're doing from a 30,000 foot view. And we are going to be in Seattle, Washington, where it is not hot in the summer. If it's hot where you are, it is perfect in Seattle. The StoryBrand workshop is going to take place there, and it's going to give you a chance to do just that. Step away for two days. Actually, if you come in Sunday, three, maybe even four days if you want to stick around. And think about your business. A lot of people come to us, of course, to they want to tell their story, and we teach them to do something different. We teach them actually to invite customers into a story, and in so doing, tell their story. But really, it's much more than that, because you're asking, what does my customer want? What is their external, internal, and philosophical problem? 
how have I positioned myself as their guide? Really, it's an identity exercise for your brand. And if you're leading that brand, it's an identity exercise for you. Why do I matter in the world? And how do I communicate that, at least for my products and my services? If you think you need that, come join us. We'll be in Seattle, Washington, July 29th through the 31st. That's You fly in on a Sunday. We do a big kind of dessert thing Sunday night. We get started Monday morning. We end Tuesday at 5. Not only do you leave having clarified your story and your purpose and coming up with a brand script that helps you communicate that, but we actually walk you through the first steps of a marketing plan. So you leave knowing exactly what to create to get your money back. And we know how important that is for you. It's not just the price of the workshop, it's your time, it's the hotel, all that kind of stuff. We want you to make a giant return on your investment. And you're gonna get that return if you show up in Seattle. You wanna register right now, storybrand.com. Look for the Seattle workshop. Register today and we'll see you soon. I have two questions. One, how do we deal with, if we have a boss who has some level of psychopathy, how do we deal with that? But before we get there, how do we create deeper human interactions in our workplace? I'm of the mind that what's happening in culture, social media, and our ability to connect with so many people on a shallow level, but what feels like a deep level, is not natural. It's not natural for us to know so many people you know the automobile came along and we're traveling and then the computer came along and now we're traveling instantly around the world and the brain just didn't evolve with that technology it still thinks you got 12 or 15 people who keep you safe most of them are family some of them are friends then you've got a tribe outside of that and we're trying to operate in, in the way our brains are working that's what it wants and that's not where we are anymore how do we, in our offices, create that small tribe of healthy people who take care of each other? I think you're right about what's going on, and I think we're hardwired for connection, hmm. not for perfection. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, I think that we've gotten so fast, and we've gotten to a point where sometimes output is so important that we're running havoc over each other in the interest of that. We're becoming myopic in the way we view things. And so I think being able to establish and maintain a value that connections are more important than perfection, than getting the optimum output, the X amount of widgets or the bottom line dollar. Right. It's not that those things are not important, but if they're subordinated or if the notion of being connected and safe is subordinated to that, ultimately I'm not sure you come out ahead anyway. It's, so if it's you, what, you're, what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to achieve? If you've got a sales team, and they don't meet a quota, you can either come up against them and threaten their security, which is going to do damage, or you can say, hey, let's analyze this. Let's see if maybe the quota was too high. Let's talk about where you're at as a person. Let's see if we need to adjust this and give a sense of safety and keep moving. Yeah, always examining the context and mm. looking for multiple and, and, variables. And letting the team member know that you're the type of person who does that, that there's not blanket judgment. Exactly. And being able to constantly engage in a creative way, staying curious, yeah. always staying curious. I wonder why this As the is going leader, on. Staying curious about the person you're exactly. talking to. Exactly. And I wonder why this is going on now. In other words, are there variables outside this room, outside the people in the room have nothing to do with the amount of effort or their sincerity or their loyalty that's compromising their ability to achieve the goal you set? And if the answer is that it's outside of their control or your control, then we reset it. 
looking always at the context. But one of the, I think, bedrock questions that we could be served by asking ourselves frequently is, what am I trying to achieve here? Most people, I think, when they turn around at the end of their lives, what they really want to be able to do is ask themselves, did I live this life as well as it could be lived? Hmm. And that doesn't always mean setting goals and railroading people, and that would probably hurt the effort. We could actually try being human beings instead <laughs> <laughs> of human doings. It's a thought. Yeah. Uh, but I think always, again, trying to achieve balance and looking at the situation. You know, we have goals, and if we don't reach them, what does it actually mean? What does it mean for what I need to do? What does it mean for what I need to understand? What are my options? What are the options of the people around me? Most of the time, we get to the right answer. Yeah. That takes a high level of empathy from the leader. What do our listeners do if they work for a boss who has very low empathy? This conversation would probably seem a little foreign to them, or they would dismiss it. What do you do if that's your leader, if that's somebody that you report to? I actually have worked with a fair number of people in my clinical practice who have come in at the hands of that kind of environment, and it's been pretty devastating and difficult to get through. I think that the person who's working in the the environment has to take a hard look at what the cost of caring for this organization or this Mm. person is. And sometimes so it's not, you're probably not going to change them. You're going to have to deal with your own. And the answer is, what can I do within myself? Or do I need to lead, grow, or go? Those are the two variables or categories of variables, really, that we're working with. So we can say glib things like, well, just don't take it personally. But when you have somebody who's perhaps raging at you, because not only do they not have empathy, but they also have low impulse control. Mm. Now you're really sitting in a situation of abuse. And there have been studies with people who do have a higher psychopathy. There's a test called the hair psychopathy checklist, and it's, it's used quite a bit. But there are people who become very malignant. You know, they're very toxic. They're very aggressive. There are other people who have high psychopathy checklist scores. And they're not aggressive. So coming to understand to the two categories of what can I control and what can I not control. But I many times see people struggling way beyond what is any reasonable capacity trying to accommodate. They need to have a boundary too. They need to say, this is not my business and I just probably shouldn't work here. There is a point at which that is clearly not a good match. Yeah. Yeah. It's clearly, and I think that that's that's completely acceptable. And I think that that is actually a brave and admirable thing to be able to say, I did the best I could. This isn't a great match for me. I'm probably not going to serve the yeah. organization in the long run. And the quality of to... your life is worth more than whatever they're paying you. Exactly. If a person's mental health is being compromised because of what they perceive as constant criticism or never being able to please the boss or not being able to get it right, the question becomes, you know, how much for how long? Yeah. How much of this for how long is appropriate and why? It seems like this is a bigger issue than just the workplace. It's a national issue. It's an issue that our country needs to deal with when we're talking about the shootings at schools. My wife has a friend who was killed here in Nashville not very long ago in a very violent way, and it was traumatic to her. And we couldn't understand, why would that happen? What happened to this person? You have interacted with Jason Aldean and his crew Uh, after the Las Vegas shootings, helping people through these traumatic experiences. You've gone into prisons, and, I mean, you've actually met with some of the notorious serial killers. 
I don't few, know if you, how, how you're allowed to talk about it or whether you're allowed to well, talk about it. Well, the, the one who's now deceased is uh, Timothy McVeigh. That's right. And there were some mental challenges there, too, right? I mean, it wasn't just a guy who was angry. I would imagine in some of these school shootings, these aren't just young men who are angry. There's something else going on with their mental health that we are going to have to grapple with. Tell us what happens to these folks and how can this, just for purposes of saving lives, right, how can we see that this person is having some kind of a break and what do we do about it as individuals and what do we do about it as a country? Well, you're, obviously you're asking an incredibly yeah, complex problem. And, but people are complex and our problems are complex. Sometimes in retrospect we could see some of the signs leading up to it. But as often as not, at least in the past, those signs were not predictors that anything this catastrophic was going to occur. Was that the case with Timothy McVeigh? There were certainly signs, obviously, he was collecting bomb-making material. Were there signs before that? He was a soldier, he Re- was yeah, at re- Waco. Re- right, recall that he went to Desert Storm and right. that he had you know, been a high school graduate from a small town in upstate New York. Was there abuse in his early childhood? You didn't get that far. Oh, you can't talk about it. Yeah, I wish you could see <laughs> Dr. Norton's face. She's saying, uh, I was trying to decide what she can say and can't say. What I would say is that there are variables that became evident as we worked on that case. Right. And because some of the people are still around, I won't go into too much detail. That was one event. What we're finding is that there's some kind of mass killing every 12 days. Is now, that right in America? M- most people, it's not making the news necessarily, but a mass killing classically is defined in the legal system as three or more. So it gets back to what you said a moment ago, which is that this is now something that has found its way into our culture. Mm. We've got some kind of a retrovirus going on, and it's moving pretty quickly, and we're trying to catch up with it. What are the common denominators of people who do this sort of thing? I mean, is there something that... I think the sense of alienation is always a common denominator. And then the question becomes, how did that unfold? How did this person become so alienated that they're so unable to have any insight or to appreciate that there are other choices here, that there are other ways to get one's needs met or be seen and be heard? That's really the question that is on my mind a lot these days. Is And as we're going and teaching people and interacting with people, what are some of the things that we should be talking about? In other words, what are the conversations that we should be having? I think this actually is one of them. Mm. Because the fact that you have this forum and you're able to ask these kinds of questions, sometimes the question is far greater greater importance than the answer. We don't have any very facile answers right now, but we're asking really good questions. And as a result, people are becoming more aware, more sensitive, and they're looking for earlier signs of people being under the kind of stress and distress that is beyond their can, beyond their ability to handle it. And that goes, you know, from children all the way up to adults. And it's not just acting out offenses, it's also suicides. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, And I, the higher rate, for example, Suicides, I just heard on the radio today, suicides have gone up every year since 1999 in all 50 states. The that, suicide rates are climbing. They are. And interestingly, there was a study, a recent study done, and this is the first time it's gone up as this much for women. Hmm. There was a designer named Kate, Kate Spade. Spade. Yeah. And they're looking right now because while she apparently was battling depression, there was nothing that seemed to be predictive of a suicide. The questions we typically ask are, are you having suicidal thoughts? Or are you having homicidal thoughts? 
But you have to be in a situation where you're asking that question. And people will answer you with remarkable honesty more time than you think. They're usually very grateful that you're interested in what's going on in their head. But sometimes you have these sort of insidious, silent presentations of great distress, and it's not anything that, say, a CEO or a manager would necessarily see. One of the things I hear a lot of is what we call survivor guilt, Hmm. which is the notion that why did I live and this person die, or why did I fail to see this and stop it? That probably goes into a a larger category of what we call secondary trauma. And so you, you can't just look at the person who shot another person or person who killed him or herself. It's, That's ex- going to it's exponential. It's concentric circle. Around. It's more like a Richter scale. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Because of the concentric circles outward. So for example, you were talking before about the shooting in Las Vegas. Well, of the people that were shot, every one of those people had family, they had friends, some of them had employees, they had employers. And if you start looking at the amount of concentric circle, the impact, it goes broadly. When they did an analysis of the Oklahoma City bombing, 169 people were killed, 3,000 were affected Mm -hmm. immediately, you know, with one, two degrees of separation. Same thing for the 9-11. So what we're trying to do is look at not only the primary victims, but the secondary and tertiary, because we are being inundated with this on the news, on the radio, on podcasts, on the computer that flashes things up in our face. Mm. And those kinds of things go somewhere, and they have an effect, if not now, cumulatively. So being mindful of the kind of culture and the kind of society that we want to develop and what we need to do now, I think, is probably the single most important thing that any of us can possibly be looking at. And that's how to see this in our culture and how to deal with it. When I hear there's a political advantage for leaders to stand up and say, this sicko, this crazy person, this coward. And when I hear that, of course, I agree. You know, they've just done a horrible, horrible thing. But I also wonder, just in terms of sheer pragmatism, is that the best response in order to prevent these things from happening? And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, how do you empathize with a mass killer, right? But to continue to dismiss this person as a sicko also says, I'm no longer curious about why you did this, the events that led up to you doing this. I'm closing down all my curiosity. I'm going to label you as a villain, which you are, and a sicko. And I have no further you know, recon to do on this. And that's where I say, wait a second, that doesn't seem helpful. That seems like this thing is going to repeat itself. So somebody says, wait, why are these people doing this all of a sudden? And why is it happening so often? And how can we prevent it as a culture? Am I on to something there? Yeah, you are. And you're also on to the instinctual trauma response, which is that when we're traumatized, our brain becomes very myopic, and we're actually in a state of shock or distress, and that robs us of curiosity. Because when you are in a state of danger or imminent danger, you're not thinking curiously. You're thinking of how can I get to safety, you know, fight or flight or freeze. So as a culture, we're really being challenged right now because we need to be able to see what's going on, you know. And also stay safe. Absolutely. That's a villain. Stay away. That's right. And eschew it and certainly not excuse it or apologize for it. And at the same time, 
continue asking the questions that you pose. So it's not either or, it's both and. And I think that the danger, one of the dangers of simply dismissing somebody, demonizing them, is that we're not enabling ourselves then to stay interested in what some of the potential causes were and perhaps equally or more important, what is it that we do now? How do we, in the face of the potential danger that we're in, how do we still function optimally as flexibly as we can and stay open to alternatives? And the research shows that the people who are most resilient are the ones that have flexible coping styles, they have open sense of communication, and they're able to garner the support of the people around them and pull it together. And those are studies done from everything ranging from the Vietnam veterans to people in natural disasters. So I think we have to optimize that, uh, be able to say well, what you're saying, which is what's going on here and what can we affect, what can we do about it? If somebody's listening to this podcast and they have had suicidal thoughts or they've had thoughts about hurting somebody else, what do they need to do right away? They need to call somebody. The answer to every problem is a person. So they need to pick up the phone and call someone and say, I'm in trouble. I need some help. It may be a mental health person, but as often as not, actually, most people get to mental health practitioners through friends, family, and in the workplace. And the more that we demystify that, and the more that we see that as a strength to be able to reach out for help, the more people can get the kind of help they need when they need it, and we can thwart a lot of complicating situations that will ensue. If we see somebody else and we think this person needs some help, they're going to hurt themselves, they're going to hurt others, how do we intervene? What's the first step we need to do on that path? If you know the person or if it's a situation where you think that it's safe to approach the person, and that's always a really big if, but there are some circumstances where it's pretty evident that that's what needs to happen, there needs to be a discussion, then certainly reaching out, using our words, tracking the person with our eyes, our body language. There's a whole body of literature on the neurological system and why looking people in the eyes and talking to them in a soft tone is helpful. If it's not a good idea, then clearly you need to call the crisis center. You need to get other people away if you think that this person is really, there's a chance that they're going to do something really dangerous. Now, of course, as you and I are sitting here and talking about that, that's a double-edged sword because... Mm -hmm. Um, you could falsely accuse somebody. Absolutely, and very, absolutely. Very traumatizing to be, them. Be mindful. <laughs> it's not an easy issue. It's not easy. No. You're asking really it's, it's complex It's a very complicated questions. narrative, I but I I'll think just it's... <laughs> go back and work with homicide <laughs> and talk to you. Well, I, I just think it's one of the most important conversations we can have as a culture. 30% or more of our time is spent in the workplace. And so to cover it here, I can't dramatically affect somebody's home life. But I can affect when they come to the office eight hours a day, what it feels like. A little bit, to some degree. I can, well, I can it, have some influence on that. And there's a pretty strong argument that you are affecting their home life. Because if they come... Well, yeah, home, if they come home stressed if and they come, if on they edge. Come, and if they come to work and it's a soft landing and it's a kind environment where people are more interested in being kind than in being right, the chances that they are going to absorb that and take it home is higher. I don't know that we can end better than that. Be more interested in being kind than being right. That's a great closing thought. Dr. Norton, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure.
Isn't she great? Yeah. Yeah, she's really great. JJ, you know, you meet with every staff member once yeah. a week. Yep. And I hired you to do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> My mental health program is you. <laughs> what do you, I mean, what are the, some of the things that you bring into that, those conversations that really, you know, go beyond, are you accomplishing your objective? What it really comes down to is most people measure their satisfaction on, are they contributing to the overall mission of the organization? And is that clear? So there is mm. a lot of like... There is a lot of just business. There is a like, lot of business, yeah. but it's not done for the sake of like business task. It's like, do you understand the role you play in the company? Are those objectives clear enough for you that you feel like you can achieve them? So you know whether you're doing a good job or you need to like step it up. So it's actually huge. That's just huge. those basic kind of four disciplines of execution, yeah. right? Those basic things are really meaningful. Yeah. And then the other part of it too, and this is an interesting thing that I think I discovered from one of our podcasts actually is that when you're really honest with people about areas that they need to improve, mm-hmm. that actually creates a sense of trust because it's not always that I'm going, you need yeah, to do this. Yeah. But when you're going, hey, there's something that happened that we need to talk about. It's a hard conversation, but but that creates a sense of trust because then when I'm telling them, you're killing it, you're doing an amazing job, what you're contributing here is really, really valuable, they trust me. Yeah. They trust that I'm telling them the truth because in those hard moments, a lot of what comes up is, can I be honest with them <laughs> and be truthful with them about where they're at, but also give them a sense of purpose, give them a sense of their value to the company and where they're headed. And they're honest with me. I mean, they'll sit there and go, hey man, this week I did not feel great about stuff. Or yeah. they'll even be able to say back to me, when you said this or when this happened, it actually was uncomfortable for me and mm-hmm. maybe me feel really insecure. Mm, yeah. So they're telling me that, and then I get to explain it, or I get to apologize. I mean, there's moments yeah. where I have to go, you know what, you're right. Yeah. I screwed up in that, and I'm sorry. We're going to try to move forward and not do that again. But it's been kind of fun, because I think there were times I was nervous about, here I moved from being really peer-to-peer with a lot of the people, yeah, to now, now the I'm boss. leading them, and I have to have some of those hard conversations. But I found some of the hard conversations are so fruitful, because they give people purpose, let them know where they're they're at and then allows there to be true vulnerability and honesty through the rest of the time. And I think that stuff is modeled by the boss, by the leadership, by the bosses, if you will. And we didn't become the leader of a company because we're incredibly empathetic and we're people-oriented, although (laughs) there are plenty of leaders like that. We've got a strong vision, incredibly strong work ethic, and we just wouldn't sleep until it was done. And I think I'm wired like that. I hope I'm an empathetic person, but you know, I'm so goal-oriented that unless it has something to do with my goals, it's hard for me to pay attention. And one of the things that I did was just hired a, you and Tim. <laughs> I, I, need somebody, I need somebody not just to pay attention to these people because I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. To remind me yeah. that this whole organization is a group of people. Yeah. And, you know, we got to care for these people. And you guys have increased my mental health, if you will. I mean, it's been a long time since I've been, I think, sad. I can't honestly remember, which is, I, that's the most entitled thing I've ever said in my life. But I think it's true. It's just been a long time. And I think it's, we just have a really healthy culture. And I think you're a big part of that. And everything that Dr. Lee Norton said is right on. Yeah. So I think it's a great episode. A lot for us to think about if you're listening to this podcast. A lot for maybe you to execute. So maybe, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, you just pull over and get out your phone and make a note and say, hey, these are two things, two or three things I want to do. Make one of those things as the leader of the organization, maybe in some conversations when it feels appropriate, say, hey, is there anything I can do yes. better? Yes. You know, one thing I never realized it's about huge. you because you're a pretty confident guy and. I never realized you needed affirmation. That never <laughs> occurred to me. And so I would be like, how's so-and-so doing? And we really need to affirm them. And are we affirming this person? And I think there was one time you just, like, you just look at me and go, how am I doing? 
I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> you're, like, you're great. You know, like, oh, geez. it's just so obvious, you know. But uh, you don't know those things until yeah. you just hope. And if communication is stifled because there's not a safe place to be honest, yeah. here's what happens to your company the pool of knowledge shrinks. Yeah, because people leave. Well, not just people leave, people don't yeah. talk. Oh, that's true too. Mm-hmm. They don't talk. And so the pool of knowledge shrinks. And the stuff that you're creating and the solutions to your problems mm-hmm. aren't on the table because people don't feel comfortable talking. And they're not going to talk openly about business stuff unless they can also talk openly about their heart. Yeah. Those things go in tandem. So wonderful episode. I love this. We're going to have to keep coming back to this conversation. Here's another thing just before we, we, you know, we can't talk about this kind of stuff without saying it. Reach out to your friends. Yeah. You know, if you've got somebody that told you recently they're going through a hard thing, they would probably love to get a phone call from you. I'm thinking of one person in particular. Who told me recently just going through some tough stuff yeah you know it didn't make a big deal no drama and they've been pinging my heart ever since this conversation with lee norton so i'm going to call them tonight you call your friend tonight yeah we'll do this together next week we're going to do workspace i promise <laughs> we're going to talk about workspace it's a good one music from this episode is by andrew bell you can listen to andrew's new record dive deep on spotify or on itunes thanks as always for listening to the building a story brand podcast where we believe if you confuse you'll lose Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.